this week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. You have to be a bit mad to be a cyclist. Whenever I mention to somebody that I cycle to work, they look at me like I've just stuck my track pump up their arse. What? How long does it take you? About the same length of time as you, I tell them. I'm getting fit while you're sitting on that arse of yours stuck in traffic polluting the earth. Almost by definition, people who cycle are considered a bit left field. And almost by definition, cyclists think that they themselves are perfectly normal. Anyone who cycles and decides to do so professionally takes this to a whole other level. Professional cyclists are mad. To want to be a professional cyclist is mad, and yet most of them think that what they do is perfectly appropriate. They never wanted to do anything else. It takes a certain type of character who enjoys hurting themselves for a living. To self-harm and push themselves to their physical limits on a weekly basis takes a kind of brain wiring the rest of us can't really understand. So what happens to cyclists when they decide to retire? Where does that propensity for the peculiar shift its gaze towards? Oftentimes, it doesn't shift very far, and the rider becomes a coach or a director sportif. Plenty of other times, the rider becomes a restaurant or bar owner, so they can regale the times where they most successfully flagellated themselves to anyone who will listen. But there are others for whom that thirst for pain, that drive toward the despondence, never subsides. Those who wish they'd never retired and would give anything to be back in the saddle, fighting for position and feeling their legs scream at them, begging them to stop. Apparently, one of those people is Andrea Taffy, a 52-year-old ex-cyclist who has expressed his intentions to take part and finish Paris-Roubaix next year. No, not the Paris-Roubaix sportif, which would be a grand achievement for most other 52-year-olds. Taffy wants to ride and finish the actual Paris-Roubaix. Next year, it will be 20 years since Taffy won that actual Paris-Roubaix himself, having slowly but surely risen through the considerable pecking order that existed in his all-powerful Mappe team. That win is described by Stephen Farrand in the June 1999 issue of Cyclesport magazine. Taffy had explained how he had always wanted to win Paris-Roubaix while wearing the Italian national champion's tricolour jersey, just as he had seen Francesco Moser do in 1980 when he was only 13 years old and had just started racing. Now he had done it. What did it feel like? Paris-Roubaix had always been a dream for me ever since I saw Moser win it, Taffy explains, and since I won the Italian national title last year, I dreamed of being just like him and winning it while wearing the red, white and green tricolour jersey. In France, that dream came true, so it's something really special. For Taffy, success came after three years of trying and twice placing behind his Mappe teammates. In 1996, he had been ordered to finish third behind Mappe teammates Johan Museo and Gianluca Bortolami, while in 1998, he was second behind Franco Ballerini. Having finally won, it has paid me back for those placings and all the sacrifices I've made during my career, Taffy says. Everybody in the team put their faith in me and gave me the chance to show what I could do. I hope that by winning, I've paid them back. I have to especially thank the Mappe boss, Giorgio Squinzi. I knew that when he had to choose between Ballerini and me for the rider for Roubaix for the next few years, he chose me. I knew I couldn't let him down. It's not often in the Velocast we get the chance to talk to a famous author. But I'm joined today by <laughs> Killian Kelly, who used to do uh, This Week in Cycling History and, and now hobnobs with the likes of Ned Bolting. All joking aside, mate, the book looks fantastic. Well done. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's... Um, and th- thanks for uh, sticking the plug in so I didn't have to at some stage. <laughs> you can do it at um, the end as well. I mean, you know, two plugs is better than one. 
Yeah, it's um, it's it's been a while coming. Ned got on to me about this time last year about the idea of of doing it, and uh, I kind of for a while I I really didn't think it would come together, just because um, we didn't really get started on it until about six months ago. But um, yeah, it looks good now, and it's published on Friday, and uh, yeah, all going well. Hopefully, it shifts a few copies. So um, yeah, it's called the Road Book. Uh, give it, all joking like, aside, I mean, before you give it the final plug, knowing how much the the arrival of your your second daughter has impacted on your ability to find even slivers of free time during the year, I'm guessing you pulled a lot of all nighters for this. Yeah, I, I did really. Jesus, it, it's um, it was um, yeah, a lot of coffee, a lot of uh, a lot of late nights and early mornings, and um, yeah, but got it done in the end and. Um, yeah, it's called The Roadbook, and you can buy it at theroadbook.co.uk. And uh, nice Christmas present for the, I don't know, for yourself or for the cycling person in your life that isn't necessarily you. So, um, hey, I'm hoping for a complimentary yeah. copy. I'm not buying it anywhere, mate. <laughs> so I'm still waiting for my copy. Actually, I, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I, I, I'm not actually sure if it's if it's been uh, off the presses yet. It, it will be in the next couple of days. But yeah, it's exciting. Right, now, this first piece that you've just done um, has been the, the subject of very much conversation for me with very many pe- you know, people over the last few uh, few weeks since it was announced. And Andrea Taffy, at the age of 52, you know, and we're used to Robert Marchand, who was pictured with his bike at 106 just the other day. Uh, but Taffy isn't aiming to do an age group record. He's not aiming even to win a race, but he's aiming to come back and to be able to keep up with the current peloton in Paris-Roubaix at the age of 52. Now, we've seen Davide Rebellin and, Mm. you know, even Chris Horner, but I would suggest there's a world of difference between someone who continually races, Valverde even, you know, to the end of their career, so that they're they're constantly in that cycle of training, they're getting the high end from race performance, all that kind of stuff, to someone who keeps a bit fit once he's retired. And we can talk later about what happens to cyclists when they retire, because that's a whole different issue that completely fascinates me. But Taffy wanting to come back and just slot back into Paris-Roubaix, I think he's mental. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do. I, I did read those articles and think he must be selling something. You know, he must be, he must be trying to flog bikes or shoes or, or something just to to get himself talked about. And, and he came up with this. I, I mean, I can't really see it happening, but uh, just the idea of it is interesting to consider. Yeah, you know, it, it's um, like you said, like physiologically, it's it's really uh, that that I think would be unheard of. You know, we've we've had a few examples. The, the prime example is is probably Lance Armstrong. We'll probably talk about him a little bit more in the next piece. But you know, he he was retired for uh, three just over three years, and and he managed to to come back at you know he he ended on the podium of the Tour de France. So I, I think you'd have to call that a success of of sorts, even though he probably wouldn't. But you know, I, there's other examples as well. The the, the one that's um, stuck out to me was uh, actually in Ireland. There's a cyclist called Kieran Power who. Um, I seen he him was doing at, something for his partner. He's ill just now. Yeah, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. That was a couple of years ago. And I'm actually not sure what the current scenario is with that. But he, yeah, he was a couple of years ago. He was trying to um, raise some funding for some treatment for his wife, and uh, 
that was um, I think that was that was part of it actually this comeback that he made. But it, he he was um, he was a, one of Ireland's most successful cyclists. You'd have to say he rode mm-hmm. the Giro d'Italia in the year two thousand. He was the first Irish cyclist to ride a Grand Tour after Roach and Kelly retired, and um, you know he wasn't he wasn't a world beater or anything. But as Irish cyclists go, he was up there and he won the Ross twice in nineteen ninety eight and two thousand and two, uh, and he retired in two thousand and eight, I think. And he decided to come back in 2016. Um, he was aged 42, I think. Yeah. Um, which isn't ridiculously old. You know, many cyclists go until 42. We mentioned Rebelan and Horner and Jens Voigt, I think, was pushing 42 when he retired. But he was, I mean, he had been retired eight years, which is uh, not quite what Andrea Taffy's talking about, but it's considerably longer than what Armstrong was retired for. But he, he uh, I read there yesterday, he had been, um, he had gone up to about 120 kilos in weight and bloody hell that's heavier than me yeah like i mean he really just he proper retired and he was there was never never a a chance of this this uh this comeback on the cards and he uh that's the one place in a cycling career you really don't want to follow eddie mercy's example isn't it yeah yeah there's there's very little chance of coming back from that but but he did and and uh he got back to to not not his racing weight of when he was a professional but good enough to ride the ross and uh and he did and he finished it i mean he, he didn't he didn't light the light the race up or anything but he got around and, and he completed it but you know the ross is one thing that's a race that is full of what are you know amateurs true amateurs that have you know jobs during yeah. the week and, and they need to find time to train at, at night and on the weekends and and uh you know, a lot of the riders in that race are in it just to get around, just to say they've done it. So from that point of view, Kieran Perro was no different from, from anyone else. But I mean, Andre Taffy talking about actually riding the the real Paris-Roubaix is, is insane. I, I actually, I remember uh, there was a while, there was a good while where every year there'd be a bit of a mutter or a murmur doing the rounds that Sean Kelly was going to come back and ride the Ross because he never rode the Ross. Unlike Stephen Roach, who did and and won it before mm-hmm. he turned professional and and left, Kelly could read it now. He probably could, and and, and that's why people. Kind of, I I don't know why the rumor got started, but I mean it, it was it was it wasn't difficult to imagine him being capable of doing it. Uh, now he's a bit, he's a bit older than Andrew Taffy. I'd say is Kelly sixty. I think he's probably sixty at this stage. If he's not, he nearly is. And uh, but maybe ten years ago there was you know rumors that he would he would come back um and and ride the ross just to say that he did so he could call himself a man of the ross because he he never rode it but that never happened either and, no uh, like coach chamanto yeah he wrote it uh twice at least i think well talking aside with kelly i mean i remember those rumors and at the time everybody that was riding you know the the club rides in carrick and sewer and stuff were saying mm-hmm. he was still kicking everybody's arse yeah, and and even a couple of years ago, he was still riding the Paris Roubaix uh, Sportive, which um, I think if you saw the headlines about Andrea Taffy, you'd probably presume that's that's what he wanted to do. But now he's he's talking about the real Paris Roubaix. I don't think Kelly would be stupid enough to to um, affect his legend, which is what would happen. You know, yeah. like it it happens a lot when these guys come back, and it happens in football sometimes. Oh like, God, football! I, yeah. <laughs> I won't prattle on too much, but the one that sticks in my mind is uh, Thierry Henry 
uh, was playing for Arsenal, and he, he became an you know an absolute legend at Arsenal. Yeah. He broke all the goal scoring records, and and uh, you know was part of the Invincibles team that, that went the whole season unbeaten. And then you know he came back after a few years at Barcelona, and he scored a couple of goals, but he, he wasn't. It was like a nostalgia trip, which wasn't it wasn't for any seemingly sporting reasons that they did it. It was pure nostalgia, and he was okay, but he he wasn't fantastic. It didn't add to his legend in any way. And, uh, you know, we've had a couple of comebacks as well in, in cycling. The other one that kind of sticks in my mind is Mario Cipollini. I'm not quite sure what year. He, did he retire in 2005? Oh, maybe? Rock Racing. That was just embarrassing. Yeah, he came back in 2008, early 2008, and, and rode for Rock Racing, which was an, a motley crew of former dopers and, and people like Mario Cipollini. Just oh, current dopers as well, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, you know, like Oscar Sevilla and Francisco Montebo and Tyler Hamilton were all there, and and uh, and Cipollini rocked up, and he he didn't really do anything, and then before retiring again, so it didn't. I'm sure he got a payday, which which suited him fine, but you know, it didn't add to his his legend whatsoever. Right, I, other... Actually, before you carry on, I'm going to yeah. throw your own words in your face, okay? <laughs> Go on, yeah. Because how often have we talked, particularly around Paris Roubaix time, about? Yeah how age really suits this race. Nobody wins it when they're young. You know, you've got Gilbert Duclos-Lasalle, all those old guys. And I mean, yeah. I remember, I mean, this show is going to go out as free to listen as a, a pimp for our, our early bird offer that finishes in a couple of days. So some people may not have heard the tale of me watching Sean Kelly doing repeat laps of the Arnberg Trench. You know, while folk are riding the sport even, he was doing it for shots for Eurosport, for colour pieces, for the actual race commentary. And it was like watching somebody float along a cloud as opposed to watching, you know, the sportive guys get mm. their nether regions battered senseless as they rode down the trench. So, I mean, even at his advanced years, Sean still looked head and shoulders above anybody that was doing it in the sportive. Moser, winner of Paris-Roubaix, came back. I've just finished reading Moser's Hour Records, uh, which it says is um, a sporting and scientific endeavour, which I'm pretty sure it was, you know, if, yeah. if we take it as one. But he managed to come back, take the Hour Record, one of the most prestigious uh, events in cycling, at fairly advanced years, still looks fit. So surely if you're going to come back for any race, Paris-Roubaix is the one to do it for, because agent experience seems to be rewarded year after year. Oh, that's, I mean, it's definitely true. I've crunched the numbers on that, and uh, there's a, there's a nice infographic in that book, actually, the Royal Book. <laughs> yeah, let's see how many mentions you can get in, mate. <laughs> and uh, well, but but it is true. It's definitely true that that uh, of all the races, Paris Roubaix rewards experience, and having ridden it, um, the more often, the more chance you have of winning it. But uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a curve where that is true up to a point, and I'd say Andrea Taffy at the age of 52 is is on the downward curve where you know experience can count for whatever you like but if you're not physically capable of acting upon that experience then you know you all, all you can all, all you're good for is is uh, is interviews and and uh, and that type of thing you know you you just you can't you can't fight that and the fact that he's 52 i mean i i don't know what age the oldest person is who's ever ridden paris roubaix um Maybe I should go and find out. There have been pretty old guys. I know Pino Cerami was kind of famously old. He won, he won a Tour de France stage well into his forties, and and uh, I'm sure he would have ridden Paris Bay around that time. But fifties, fifty two, it's just I I don't know. But I mean, on the flip, on there's a there's another aspect to this, which is, you know, which team is going to grant him 
a place. You know, we've already had reductions in in teams last year from nine to eight in the Grand Tours and eight to seven in the in the other races. Yeah, and I was and, uh, I was arguing in the main velocast that I would, I actually I would like to see Taffy ride for all you know, and we'll we'll talk a wee bit about his coloured history. Mm. Um, he was one of my favourite riders, you know, he was, he, he looked like granite on a bike, you know, people have heard me talk about Tom Boone and like that, he just looks like he's hewn from granite on a bike, beautiful, but what he's actually doing is for essentially self-gratification, he's potentially robbing a young rider of a chance to show themselves and, you know, the beautiful showcase that is Paris-Roubaix that might land them a contract that gives them a 10-year career. Mm, and that's it, and I've, I've done, I've crunched the numbers as well on uh, the number of riders who rode their first ever Grand Tour this year, as an example. And uh, I, I don't have them in front of me, but the number is way down compared to any other year. Like, it, it, I think I I think I covered the last 40 years, mm-hmm. and this year is the lowest number of total riders who made their Grand Tour debut this year. And that, it's no coincidence that the teams are... Uh, that they can't pick as many riders. So these are the guys that, that miss out. Now, I haven't crunched the numbers on the Monument Classics. I'd imagine you'd find the same sort of trend where they, guys being given their debuts, teams just can't afford that anymore. Yeah. They've only only six domestiques now for the for whoever the the your leader is, or maybe five if you've got a two pronged attack or three sometimes in 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 some teams' cases. So, you know, places are at a premium, and and he would be taking a place away from from a younger rider. And uh, it would have to be somebody like Sniper Cycling or something, wouldn't it? Well, it would be one of the wildcard teams you would you would imagine, or or maybe somebody fishing for a wildcard uh, in the hopes that this story would would ma- would be a reason to to get a wildcard, and maybe cynically it might be, you know, because people are going to write about it. If if n- normally the wildcard teams don't really do anything, they might get a, a rider in the break and they're caught and passed by the time they get to Arenberg, and and that'll be that. Whereas if Taffy is in the race, you can guarantee that it's going to be talked about written about way more than if you know a 21 year old is riding the race for the first time and 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 uh, abandons you know after yeah. 180 kilometers or whatever it might be so from a cynical point of view you know perhaps there's a, there's an element of that but uh going back to taffy's original victory i, I mean i watched this I watched an hour of it on uh, on youtube the other day last week and uh yeah, I, I mean, you, you probably appreciate position on a bike a lot more than me, the nuances of it. But I mean, I, I can even I can tell oh, like, Taffy. Oh, unbelievable. The flat like, you know, that all kind of uh, cliche that you can place a glass of water on their back and, and, you know, take it off them a kilometer later and they'll still have it on it. Like if I mean, Taffy is the stereotypical position where, where that could possibly be true. I actually I read a couple of things. Um, about uh, bike setup, I might go and put oh the tea God. on while, while you start talking. But I'll, 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 I'm just curious what the differences um, make. I, I read that uh, he rode 23 millimeter tires, whereas all his teammates and uh, many of his rivals—I'm not sure how they know that—but many of his rivals rode 27, and that he rode uh, shorter cranks than usual in order to pedal faster on the pave. I don't mm. know. I'm just wondering, does that? Does that make sense? Is yeah, that, it, it makes very little sense at all. But, I mean, if any beer's full of, uh, 
you know, the, the kind of lore of bike fit, it's Paris-Roubaix. You know, everything's mm. been tried there. There's actually, the, the reason they know about tyre sizes is there's a huge amount of data about tyres for Paris-Roubaix and rims and, you know, spokes back in the day and all sorts of stuff. You know, the Mavic SSC. It, it, I mean, I, I literally, I could bore you witless about it. The shorter cranks I can see because it does give you extra clearance. Um, and if you're riding 23s, you're going to be going down quite a few of the cracks in the pave. Um I think if you look at the recent shift towards wider tyres, you know, loads of pros are riding 25s, even 28s now in normal races that aren't pavé because lower pressure and a larger volume has been shown to, to roll really well whilst adding to your comfort. But for ages, I mean, I, I rode 23s long after I knew 25s were, were comfier and just as fast, just because I'd always done it. And in a race like Paris-Roubaix, I can easily see somebody like Taffy, the extra confidence they got from a setup that they believed to be right was probably worth more than the actual value of riding 27s or 28s. I mean, they're up to 30s and they're talking about 32s next year. Um, you know, have moved away from suspension back to a normal bike. So I think it was probably just his opinion. He felt good about it. And if you feel good about it, you're going to go fast. It's probably as simple as that. It was a very dry day as well. Does that make a difference? Yeah, oh, definitely. Aye. Um, 23s would be narrow in the pave, though. I mean, I'd, even I yeah. put 25s on for my brief forays on those evil stones. So um, that makes it all the more impressive. But also, he was incredibly strong. I mean, I remember reading reviews or interviews with him where he was talking about going on alpine training camps with, you know, with the MAPE team at the time. And mm. he'd fall off the back of the group on an alpine climb, put it in 53-12, get on the drops and catch up for the group in a seated position. He, he, I, that was the other thing that really is striking in that in that footage. Like, I, I it, it is the last hour I think that I found on YouTube. Anyway, it was the Eurosport coverage with David Duffield and Sean Kelly commentating. And, I miss uh, Duffield. I, I mean, he like we we talk about Duffield, and you know, he bang, he always used to bang on about sausages and cheese and castles and whatever else. But when when it got to the crunch stage of a race, he really was a fantastic yeah. commentator. He was brilliant, and uh, himself and and Kelly were. were were on the mics and and they were um, they were talking a lot about how strong Taffy was and this was before uh, Taffy made his his race winning move at about thirty five kilometers to go solo and and ended up just eking out his advantage slowly over those thirty five kilometers up until it was it was nearly two minutes by the time he got to the velodrome on his own but uh, before that um, a few kilometers before he he made that move uh, he had punctured so there was a bit of drama you know T taffy had punctured he he um was waiting for a wheel and then ca caught back on and almost immediately went off the front he didn't hang around once he caught back onto the group but uh when kelly was talking about him watching him catch back on and before he, he made the move the, the winning move he had um he'd obviously been quite active in the race beforehand because kelly was kind of you know the way he was talking was like a, a warning to Taffy that you know he's clearly re he's clearly the strongest rider in the race, but he's being stupid. Mm. You know he's he's mis misusing his strength and he's using it in the wrong places. And he was saying you know he's not he's not making his moves on the cobbles, which is where he could make the most damage. He's doing it in these kind of you know the the open fields with the on, on normal roads and and uh, very exposed. And he, he's just being foolish with his strength. And uh, the race that that really reminded me of when the commentators were saying the same thing was Fabian Cancellara in the World Championship Road Race in 2009 in Mendrisio. And I, that always strikes me as a race where the strongest rider just didn't win because Cancellara was, was being stupid with his, his strength. He had obliterated everybody in the 
in the time trial a few days beforehand and uh, was the favourite, I think, for that road race going into it, but uh, just used his strength in all the wrong places and uh, ended up not being able to make it count and Cadell Evans ended up sneaking away to win that race. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, that that's always a race that's struck me as a stereotypical example of you know it's not only in the legs that you need to win races it's in the head as well and Cancellara made a, a meal of that one and it did look like Taffy was doing the same but then he just slipped away it wasn't even an attack it was like he just started cycling faster and nobody reacted and uh, it was you know one of those things where they look at each other for five seconds and that was enough and Taffy had a gap of 100 meters and he was never seen again and um yeah it, it, it just just struck me that even though despite he he was he seemed like he was being foolish with his strength. He still had more than enough of it to to go on and win it by by two minutes. One of the big controversies, of course, is that there's a, a lot of discussion and uh, quite a lot of research done about the the long term effects of performance enhancing drugs on your system, mm-hmm. uh, and that even and this is pointed particularly at Alejandro Valverde. You know, I was talking to to Derek in a flamcast yesterday. Mm. Um, it's one of the big criticisms of Valverde that even if he's not taking drugs now, you know, even if he's clean, he's got some benefit for that. You've got to say for Taffy, I mean, you can talk about, you know, he was in that French Senate report, as you say in your notes. Um, it was the height of all sorts of performance enhancing practices. But having been retired for so long, it's hard to, it's hard to credit much benefit from the steroids and EPO that he took <laughs> when he was young, is it? You know, I'm pretty yeah. sure all the red wine and cocoa van that he's been ramming in his throat or, you know, he's Italian, all the various types of pasta. It surely offsets the, the performance enhancing drugs by a fair bit. Yeah, you would imagine. But uh, it's actually quite amazing how uh, how little there is about Taffy dabbling with doping products in this era, you know, in an era where it was rife and he was in a team notorious for it for the majority of the the, the prime of his career at MAPE. Um, that's the only, as far as I can tell anyways, the only thing I found was the only mention of him in any official way being connected to a positive test or an investigation or whatever it might be was in that French Senate report, which was released in 2014, maybe 2015, where they uh, they went back and retested loads of samples from the 1998 Tour de France. And unsurprisingly, loads of people would have tested positive for EPO if there had been an EPO test back then. Yeah. And, and Taffy was named. But uh, to have been on, on the MAPE team and... Uh, you know, he he would have been, he was a domestique for Tony Rominger when he absolutely dominated the Giro d'Italia in 1995, mm. and uh, you know Rominger was no stranger to this stuff. And and Mappe, you know, there's, there's obviously that that uh, they they dominated Paris Roubaix for for years in that era. They they consistently got the top three riders in in Paris Roubaix, and and Taffy was part of the most famous one where they all crossed the line together with uh, Museo. Yeah, and, under team orders for Museo to win. Yeah, and, and you know, Taffy was ordered to come third, effectively, behind Museo on that. And, uh, you know, just swirling around that whole era, it, it's it's quite amazing that he, he escaped it unscathed, um, apart from four years ago when he was named in this in this Senate report. He, he uh, you know, there's, there's nothing else sullying his reputation as such explicitly, I mean, obviously implicitly, just even being part of the MAPE team, you're, uh, it, it's hard to argue that you They were you a powerful squad. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it, it seems 
clear that he he was uh, in, involved in that. It's it's uh, of co- of course it's clear that he was involved in that. But um, I can't imagine at the age of fifty two, twenty years later that, that like you say that it hasn't been absolutely diluted by whatever else he's been putting into his body since. Well, statistically, he's a lot more likely to need Viagra than EPO, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's been taken as a performance enhancer too, hasn't it? Well, no, it certainly increases blood flow, I believe. Um, before we move on to to the next piece, which is about a, a topic close to my heart, as you well know, although you mock me in the notes, I'll let you away with that. Um, Andre Shamil, who's a brilliant classics writer for Lotto, uh, and yeah. and also Taffy, it's a really interesting stat. Uh, I, you know, I knew that they'd both won three of the five monuments. I, it never occurred to me that neither of them had ever won a Grand Tour stage. Yeah, it just um, just when I was looking back through Taffy's career, it struck me that he had never won one. Even though he, I mean, he did ride Grand Tours. He rode the Tour de France six times. He, he rode the Giro and the Vuelta a couple of times as well, so he was no stranger to a Grand Tour, but uh, never, never won a stage. And then it kind of this is this is how I end up filling out these spreadsheets. I I've, a little fact like that pops up, and I think, huh, I wonder, wonder is that true of of other people or how, how many how many people have done that? But um, yeah, for for any riders who have won three out of the five Monument Classics, only two of them never won a Grand Tour stage. And that's uh, Andre Taffy and Andre Chmil, who were, I suppose, quite similar riders mm, of very, the same era, yeah. very, very much rivals of that time. Um, and, uh, and and neither of them did it. And um, despite the fact that they both rode Grand Tour stages, I mean, you'd, you'd have to say that they were classics men and, you know, real uh, de- dedicated to the, to the World Cup, which you know, would have been on throughout their careers. And uh, obviously on a team like Mappe as Taffy was and Lotto as Schmiel was for most of his prime years of his career, there wasn't that pressure to perform in Grand Tours on those two, you know, Belgian or Italian. Or if it was, you were a domestique for Romeo. You know, um, yeah, there, there wasn't the, the, the pressure for yourself to excel. You were there to work for somebody else. Yeah, and, and the other two kind of stereotypical classics writers which popped into my head were uh, Johan Museo and Tom Boonen. And I, both of those, you could say that for the latter half of their career, it was the same. They, there was no uh, expectation for them to ride Grand Tours or do anything in Grand Tours. And in fact, Tom, the last time Tom Boonen finished a Grand Tour was when he won the green jersey in the Tour de France in 2007. That was 10 years before he retired. He never, he, I think he rode maybe two or three more Grand Tours, but never finished them. And Museo was exactly the same. He uh, he won, like Boone, and he won a couple of tour stages early on in his career. And uh, Museo didn't win the green jersey. He wore it a few times and uh, wore the yellow jersey as well, like Boone, and they're very similar. But then Museo just stopped riding Grand Tours. There was no pressure. For, I, I think the last eight years of his career, I think he rode one and didn't finish. Um, but, you know, it's rare that, that you're afforded that that um, uh, leeway or, or, you know, just the, the, the freedom to ignore Grand Tours. I mean, you know, you think of the, the real big classics names that we've had over the last five years now. I mean, Boone and aside, you would have Cancellara, Peter Sagan, Philippe Gilbert, you know, anybody, all of them, there's still an expectation that these guys perform in the Tour de France. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the just riders that, that um, 
are afforded the opportunity to just focus on classics. Not really a thing anymore at this, you know, too much commercial pressure. But yeah, same wasn't true of of Chamil and Taffy. They were they were free to do to do that. Now we'd planned to record this piece before the the Tour de France route announcement, yes. um, yeah. and at the time there were rumours there was going to be a, a an uphill time trial that finished in the Col de Tourmalet. Um, it transpires it's not it's, it's a really exciting stage in prospect Scott and I will go through the whole route tomorrow in the, the main fellow cast but I think it's a 117 kilometre stage so it's going to be absolute carnage and it's not from La Mongey, you know it's from a, a different side so you know people are getting going to get a really good spectacle in the day but that prompted you to write a piece about uphill time trials so um, this is it Rumours abound that the 2019 Tour de France may contain a mountain time trial to the summit of the called Tourmalet. This, I'm sure I'm not alone, leaves me conflicted. Every year when the Tour route is announced, I look for the inclusion of the iconic climbs. Alpe d'Huez, first and foremost, but also Mont Ventoux, the Tourmalet, the Galibier, the Isouard. Having the Tourmalet on the route again would be a treat, but having it taken over, not by a road stage full of tactics and intrigue, but by a time trial, Oftentimes the tour organisers get praise for coming up with innovative stages. Take the short stage we had in this year's race, a 65km mountain stage in the Pyrenees. Exciting, interesting, sure, but innovative? No. Anyone claiming that stage as innovative must have forgotten Stephen Roach's first ever Tour de France stage win in 1985 when he won a 52.5km stage finishing atop the Col d'Aubisque. The same is true of mountain time trials. They don't appear too often in the Tour de France, but they do appear, having done so for the first time in 1958, when Charlie Gaulle, a 21.5km test atop Mont Ventoux on his way to overall victory. In subsequent years, mountain tests were won by Federico Bahamantes twice and Felice Gimondi. Throughout the Merckx years, there were none, before a reappearance in 1977, when a timed effort to Avorias was won by Lucien van Imp. The 1980s saw the mountain time trial become a mainstay of the Tour, with stages being won by Joub Zutemelk, Bernardino, Angela Royo, Lucien van Imp again to Avorias, Laurent Fignon, and perhaps most famously of all, Jean-Francois Bernard up Mont Ventoux in 1987. In more recent years, the most famous mountain time trial the Tour de France has staged was on the most famous mountain of them all, Alpe d'Huez. It was in 2004, and it was won, of course, by Lance Armstrong. John Wilcoxon describes that stage in his book about that whole tour, 23 days in July, inside Lance Armstrong's record-breaking victory in the Tour de France. All of their efforts pale in comparison to Armstrong. With the help of coaches Carmichael and Ferrari, he has perfected a dynamic pedalling style using a smaller gear than the others use, which he pedals with amazing speed. This enables him to use less power for each pedal stroke and maintain a higher speed for a longer time. Halfway up the climb, when he first sights Ivan Basso, his cadence is as high as 96 revs per minute. But it's not just technique he's winning with, it's also his power and aerobic capacity, the efficiency of his body to use available oxygen, both of which he has progressively built up through the spring and summer with a rigorous training program. The program runs him through mind-numbing interval training on both long and short climbs, over and over. No wonder Armstrong says his success is based on his dedication and preparation, and that a race like today's is just a term paper. When I got Ivan in my sights, Armstrong says, that really motivated me. Poor Basso doesn't see the Texan behind him, but he hears the screams for Armstrong growing louder and louder, and he knows that he will soon be passed and soundly beaten. With two miles to go, the Texan mercilessly catches Basso, his last remaining rival, and surges past his Italian friend without even a glance in his direction. 
At the same moment, Ulrich is finishing his climb out of the saddle, riding as hard as he can, shaking side to side, his wide open mouth gulping in air, his muscles screaming with pain. He crosses the line with the fastest time yet, 40 minutes and 42 seconds. Cloden is next to arrive, out of the saddle covered in sweat on the verge of collapse. His time is impressive too though, 40 seconds behind Ulrich, who showed today why he's still T-Mobile's team leader, even though he's behind his teammate on overall time. Ulrich stands at the finish, watching Armstrong on TV. The German has a look of both envy and anger on his face, knowing he's going to be beaten once more. The fans lining the barriers now turn to see Armstrong speeding through the final corner. The hundreds of Americans here scream him on. As if carried forward by their shouts, the champion is flying up the last 220 yards like a track sprinter, knowing that he has won but wanting to eke out every possible second over his adversaries. Till the very end he's pumping like a madman, his energy and power as inspiring as the mountain itself. Armstrong's time flashes up, 39.41. Another one minute gain on Ulrich, 1.40 on Cloden and 2.10 on Basso. Armstrong's performance is one that only he and past champions like Copy, Merckx, Eno and Indrain could achieve. They have a capacity to go beyond human tolerances, says Shelley Versus, the massage therapist, who has an intrinsic knowledge of an athlete's physical limits. They have a capacity to go beyond anger, beyond heat, beyond cold, beyond pain. They are gifted human beings. Reflecting that assessment, Phil Liggett, the tour's best-known British announcer, proclaims to his TV audience, Lance now has no rivals except the race itself. It's true. If there was one point where Armstrong clinched his sixth Tour de France victory, it was here, on the top of Lab d'Huez, on this legendary mountain, Lance made the climb of his life to become a legend himself. We should bear in mind, actually, that, um, you know, in uphill time trials, there's there's a lot of, I mean, you, you mock me for tactics, but there's a lot of <laughs> tactics. But I think the favourite one is, is Jonathan Vochters, who said when he did the uphill time trial in Mont Vong 2, he was glowing so hard they could have seen him from space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, you know, I know, I know there are tactics and intrigue in time trials. Of course there are. And I, uh, I don't often spend enough time sitting down to appreciate them and and uh you know all that comes with it and the nuances of uh you know negative splits and pacing and uh you know if you follow somebody like michael hutchison on twitter he he's great for describing what's going on yeah. and, and if you're lucky enough he can be in the commentary box on eurosport sometimes for this and he's excellent at uh at picking apart people's tactics which is what they are um, i actually think there's a very good argument for dedicated time trial commentary teams because i think it'd be much more interesting the two things that would make it more interesting are one the thing that would make every single bit of cycling and telly more interesting let's have accurate time splits and distances oh, to Jesus. the finish and all that kind of stuff because that's bad in a road race but if you're missing those basics in a time trial you're screwed mm -hmm. you know it's as simple as that but the other is someone like dr hutch who instead of going on about you know the local cheese or how somebody you know shuffles about in the saddle without understanding why they do that and all that kind of thing you know have somebody who can pick apart the absolute minutiae of the thing to make people realise just how subtle a time trial is. Physically, it's about going as fast as you can. But when you look at the preparation, the pacing, you know, the, the aerodynamics, the wheel choices in a given day, the changes in aerodynamic position over the decades since you know, tri-bars were first introduced, there's a load that you could talk about over maybe three years of coverage that somebody like Dr Hutch would do superbly well. And God bless them, just general commentators just don't understand how deep it goes you know how deep that rabbit hole that the average time trial has disappears down is and they, and they do tend to get guys like uh dr hutch to do the world championships yeah. uh, of, of all the races 
um, which unfortunately often is one of the races which doesn't have the on-screen graphics that yeah. you'd expect oh. to find. But the, but they often uh, get time trial-specific commentators. And, uh, you know, it was the World Championships which, um, which came to mind when... I, I racked my brains to try and think of exciting time trials, and it it was um, it was the uphill time trial, which um, which was last year in um, in Norway in Bergen, which uh, I I thought it was one of the best time trials I'd ever seen. Yeah. And despite the fact that it was won by the favourite by by quite a large margin, it was still riveting to watch. And you know, do you remember there was that whole? Well, they uh, use the carpet. Yeah, again, and but that leads into this idea of tactics in a time trial where, yeah, the carpet that they had prepared for people to make a bike change at the foot of the, the final climb if they wanted to or not. And some people did, some people didn't. I actually can't remember if Tom Dumoulin did or not. Maybe he, I don't think he did, actually. No, he didn't. He went through on the same bike. And uh, But that was, it was really um, exciting. And uh, that often, for me anyway, isn't the case in a standalone time trial such as the World Championships where you don't you don't get many standalone time trials I mean not part of a stage race where you do have the wider context of uh, you know time gaps and the overall general classification um, which you do obviously in the Tour de France but uh, I mean I did find that really uh, exciting and I think one of the other reasons why I, I find it exciting is that in a normal time trial I say normal you know like a a flatter more more uh regular time trial you know riders get into the position that they want to be in the one they've practiced the one they've put all the hours into perfecting and they stay there and that's the way they ride the time trial whereas in a mountain time trial uh a lot of that goes out the window yeah. and you know some of them try to maintain that position for instance i remember bradley wiggins going up the caldez at the end of paris nice when he won paris nice and and he didn't move which is what you would expect from a, a guy like wiggins uh richie port i think has done the same in the caldez time trial and both of them to good effect but a lot most of the other riders they just can't can't do that whether it's because it's too uncomfortable or because I don't know. You probably know better. Maybe it's because it's not as easy to breathe when you're in that position, when you're putting in the efforts required to go uphill. But a lot of the time, the uh, the position element of it goes out the window and you do get guys suddenly rocking their shoulders and yeah. getting out of the saddle and sitting back down and you start to see pain faces and, and it makes a big difference. So I, I do enjoy uh, a mountain time trial, I guess is what I'm trying to admit to. Finally, Scott's ears are probably burning at the, at the... To be fair, Scott loves a mountain time trial as well, and I actually think it's the perfect sporting event because it unites both people who hate time trials but love climbers, which is, you know, Scott, and people like me, you know, fat old testers from the, from yesteryear who really yeah. enjoy a nice flat time trial. A mountain time trial just gives you it all. And you're right. I mean, that's that's one of the wee bits of, you know, the, the detail that people miss is if you're going at 12, 13 miles an hour as these guys are going up hills that you and I would struggle to go half that up, then yeah. still being in the aero position is worth something. But if you haven't trained in it, it's hideously uncomfortable at that point. So, I mean, there's all that, have they prepared properly? Have they looked at the route? There's all that subtlety to discuss that's that's missed. And even you mentioned cadence in the piece. Mm. One of the things I love is it's really difficult to tell how fast someone's going in a time trial because you can have somebody who loves to mash a big gear is churning a gear round to 85 revs a minute and looks like they're just churning through treacle and you think, oh, they're going slowly. But actually, they're in such a massive gear that they're going faster than the wee guy whose legs are going round at 110 revs a minute. 
Well, I, I mean, it's the classic example from 2004, which is the stage I kind of go into a bit of detail there, which was up Alpe d'Huez, which Armstrong obviously won and, you know, has been stripped of and all that. But, but the, you know, that day it was really the story of Jan Ulrich versus Lance Armstrong, which is the two types of riders you've just described there. Um, <coughs> excuse me, complete opposite ends of the the, the egg-beating spectrum with, with Armstrong whirring his, his legs around and Ulrich mashing a big gear. And, and like you say, they, just, they, they look completely different. And uh, that... Um, that 2004 so I, actually I watched over an hour of that this morning again that's all on YouTube as well and uh, I couldn't believe I was I was up at half five in the morning with um, one of my one of my daughters trying to put her back to sleep and uh, watching a time trial from 2004 put her back to sleep but amazingly it didn't put me back to sleep it kept me awake because I, I really enjoyed it and uh, it was um, it was quite exciting to watch and but it did uh it did contain, uh, it was more than the racing, you know, it was about the crowd as well. And I, I do wonder about having a mountain time trial in the Tour de France um, now, nowadays. Um, I know there was a, a kind of a hilly time trial. Uh, was it in 2016, maybe? That you you couldn't have an Alpe d'Huez one through. I mean, that's the whole point. We saw what happened with Vincenzo Nibali this year on a normal road race stage. Yeah. You it know, was it'd be absolute like, carnage if you had a time trial up that now. And even in 2004, when I, I think maybe the, the crowd, maybe this is a perception thing, or maybe I'm wrong, but I didn't get the sense back then that the, the crowds were as potentially problematic as they are now. But what I did notice in that footage is that only a handful of people had cameras. Mm. You know, you, you get the odd person sticking their, craning their neck out in the middle of the road and waiting what seemed like way too long before moving back in so as the rider passed in front of their face because they didn't realise how close they were. The old, you know, objects are closer than they appear. But uh, now what it is... What was the guy's er name? Eric? Oh, that Giuseppe Garini yeah. cycled into. Yeah, and that wasn't even a time trial. That was no. just going up Abdu to Ez, uh, uh, one of the other years. Um, but, you know, only not that many people would have looked what, what, what was a fairly hefty object up up to west to take a picture whereas nowadays absolutely every single person on that route has a has a phone and a camera in their pocket and I, I i can't actually imagine them being able to cycle through all of these people taking their phones out not necessarily even pointing at the riders pointing at themselves trying to take selfies throwing themselves into the road at funny angles trying to take photos of themselves i i just having watched that footage this morning and thinking, Jesus, how did they actually allow this to happen? Fast forward to nowadays where it's gotten considerably worse and the whole camera thing, I just I can't see it happening. I have in the notes that uh, Jean-Marie LeBlanc admitted in 2004 that that was actually a bad idea. But uh, having since written this and watched the footage this morning, after the stage, he was interviewed, you know, very soon after the stage, and uh, he was quite defiant and, you know, saying that this was a good idea. And he was he almost turned it back on the interviewer. I don't know who the interviewer was. It was in French and it, but it was subtitled. And but he almost said, like, are you saying this was a bad idea? Are, is that what you're saying? And the interviewer was kind of, you know, step back and said, ah, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that. And LeBlanc was like, good, because we'll you know, was this not spectacular? We'll do this again. And he was really defiant. But in the reports later on, on, you know, the likes of CyclingNews.com, he had he had changed that position and perhaps he had started hearing these stories of, uh, you know, like for instance, Lance Armstrong claims he was spat on a lot 
Mm. I think Robbie McEwen had a lot of complaints as well. And there were fears uh, for Armstrong's safety. They were talking about you know putting a bodyguard in a motorbike and all sorts beside him, weren't they? Yeah, and I actually before I sat down to write this, I had memories of uh, it being reported that there was urine thrown on Armstrong as well, which you know might have been around the time it happened to to Froome or was it Cavendish as well in, in yeah in, Cav uh, at Mont Dor time trial got got pee thrown on him no not Mont Dor Mont Saint Michel yeah. uh, he got pee thrown him during that time trial didn't he so I think I have vague memories then that it was brought up that Armstrong had this happen to him in 2004 but when I started looking into it over the last few days I couldn't find any any reports of it but it was just just I say just it's still terrible like spitting on riders and, and to be uh, fair it would save him some time you know instead of having a full sample he could just have wrung out his skin suit out of the <laughs> test tube <laughs> oh he he would have come up smelling like roses anyway in those days I, but, but that's another thing that struck me about the footage you know just how alpha dog Armstrong was and this was real peak Armstrong he was going for his sixth in a row uh this was just to put a bit of context on this stage he had just taken the yellow jersey the day before for what was the second time in the race you know he did his kind of perennial thing of taking the yellow jersey jersey early and giving it away it was thomas vockler actually had it Mm -hmm. that was the year vockler had it for 10 days and uh hung on um and uh had it for longer than was expected but eventually ceded it to armstrong so armstrong had taken it the previous day and uh was wearing it for this alto west time trial and uh but the so the, the, the let me get this right. The Alpha time trial was stage sixteen, but in in Tyler Hamilton's uh, book, he he almost quotes Floyd Landis, I think, where Landis is describing um, the scene the day before Armstrong took that yellow jersey back, which was the rest day, and this was if people maybe remember you know uh, snippets of this being reported when that book came out this was when they parked over at the side of the road in the team bus pretending to be broken down and, and the armstrong, blood bags yeah oh yeah they all did the blood bags and armstrong was lying down on the middle of the in the middle of the bus and and uh, they all got their their uh, their fill and that was that was the day before and uh, you know you have armstrong after the after the stage kind of trumpeting the fact that they had reconned this and they put in the hard work and sorry guys there's no secrets blah 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 and two days before and he was lying on the floor of a bus getting getting blood pumped into him and it's really kind of harrowing stuff to 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 read about and and, and to and to think Actually, we'll, um, we'll finish with armstrong's legacy in a minute to be fair to them they i mean they they doped up to the, the eyeballs but they also did actually do the recon in the prep as well and i think that might have been one of the things that made the difference in an era when everybody was doping up to the eyeballs yeah i and i i do think there's a truth to that and uh you know, this is the type of thing that Johan Brunel would would claim and kind of, you know, shrug and say everybody was taking drugs, but but people weren't doing the other things that we were doing, and uh, you know nobody cares because it's Johan Brunel and he, he's burned whatever bridges of sympathy he had a long time ago. But but I do think there's an element of truth to that, and the whole idea of of reconning uh, stages, um, while not new, I think Armstrong and Brunel took it to a whole another level. Um, and uh, and they did really focus on the the uh, the bits and pieces that maybe other teams were taking for granted and ignoring, and 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 there was that whole side of things. But you know that that mainly gets ignored for the for the headlines, which is that you know they they took blood transfusions a couple of days beforehand, and maybe just to highlight again, just uh, I you know the, the kind of the alpha dog status that Armstrong had 
earned at this stage in his career. This was also the year of his feud with Filippo Simeone. And that was, this was only, I think, was it the day? It wasn't the day after Abduez. It was another mountain stage. It was, it was two days after the Abduez time trial. Um, the day before Armstrong had, had won as well, actually. He won, I think he won four stages in five days. And, uh, but it was the day after that, it was stage 18 that Simeone got into that breakaway and Armstrong chased him down. down. yeah. And, uh, and did the zippy lips symbol. And it was, you know, really, um, the the, the kind of the 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 um yeah just peak Armstrong I'd say that that tour was he had really uh become bigger than the race I think as much as that's possible at that point yeah. and and it, and it was really yeah he was using his using his powers for evil at, at that stage and and um yeah but still you know interesting to look back on and and uh, you know I, I understand why people have the reaction where they say they want to go and burn their copy of it's not about the bike and, and never watch Armstrong again. That's perfectly fine. I, I tell I you what, it. I mean, all joking aside, because you know, now you're an author, you can talk with some authority about these things and I'm pretty sure you'll manage to get another mention of the book in before <laughs> the end of the show. Yeah. Um, reading, I mean, I, I, you know, when I, I used to do the book show with you when I was trying to keep up with your, your books and eventually just gave up read half of them and then, you know, try and try to try to keep up with you during the show. Um, <laughs> I love reading, you know, bits from the golden age of cycling. I, I love reading about Moser's hour record. And, you know, that's all just as dodgy as Armstrong's stuff in its way. You know, Cicini et al. were, were, were pushing the boundaries in, in every way possible to make that old guy go faster in the track. Mm. But there is something particularly cringeworthy about the kind of hagiography that comes out of that time. You know, that, that passage from Wilkinson's book that you read, it's just, I mean, it, it is genuinely just cringeworthy. Yeah, and and um, you know, I, I reserve a certain level of sympathy for guys who were writing about the sport in in that time, but uh, some of it just really buys into this uh, myth, which is is what it was. We know that now. Maybe it wasn't that obvious at the time, but just just fully subscribing to it without seeming to question any of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wilkinson's book doesn't age well you know it doesn't read well now the just even the little passage i mentioned there you know it's got it's got a good few of the of the cliches in it that you know armstrong was just you know he pioneered this pedaling style i mean you know just the idea that nobody had thought of just moving your legs faster you know that's <laughs> surely people had tried that and, and they had tried that you know Armstrong didn't wasn't the first person to try cycling faster and <laughs> and, and yet you know that's attributed as as the reason that uh, that he was able to do this and even in commentary I mean you mentioned uh, it, it's good to have expert time trialists in commentary Paul Sherwin and Phil Ligge were obviously doing the the commentary in those days and that they were the ones who were commentating on the footage that I watched on YouTube this morning now Paul Sherwood knows a lot more about time trialing than I do he would have written a fair few Tour de France time trials in his time but he I wouldn't really describe him as an expert time trial commentator and he I he must have mentioned the speed at which Armstrong was turning the pedals 15 times yeah. in, in, in the commentating, in, in, the, in the, the 40 minutes that it took Armstrong to go up that mountain that year. And it was just like the go-to reason or the, just the, the, the explanation. And it just, you know, like, I mean, I, I know it's easy to look back now and say, how could they have just taken it at face value? But it was more than that. It was that they took it at face value and, 
kicked the ball further up in the air than it needed to be and uh it's uh it, it is it's cringeworthy now looking back at the footage of the commentary and reading a book such as john wilcoxon's um and it's uh yeah it, it can be a hard read sometimes but again i i wouldn't be inclined to go to think to myself oh i'm never reading that again it's still a, it's a document of its time exactly that's exactly it and and it's important to realize that that's what it was and and to inform now not to make these mistakes again and people are making these mistakes again i mean you know we see it with team sky and marginal gains and you know what does marginal gains actually mean you know it's not just pillows and m&ms and duvets and toothpaste or whatever it is it's uh you know it's tues and and taking taking whatever drugs you can and Mm. um you know it's not just uh it's not just what the what the pr spin is there's always more to it and i guess maybe that's the takeaway story let's finish this show uh you know it's going to it's a free listen we don't we don't want to give away too much for free so let's keep it reasonably brief as opposed to as usual woefully ones um armstrong you've got a lot of grief recently by mentioning that you know maybe it's time to change our opinion about um replacing in his context and history you know not saying he's a good guy but recognize that he was doing what basically everybody else was done and to demonize him and essentially give an excuse to the rest of that generation is maybe the wrong thing well i i mean yeah i i I'm not really sure. I haven't really decided how I feel about it yet. Like I've, I've, got, I've. I mean, the only grief I've gotten is for bringing it up in the first place. Um, but you know, I do think I, I've said this before. I do think there has been a shift in in how people perceive him. Um, you know, he, he's obviously on a kind of a charm offensive, and he's got his his own podcast, and and he uh, he 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 does push for a kind of positive. PR and I, you know, I think it's worked to a certain extent. There'll always be people who, who, who never want to hear from him again, and that's fine. That's a perfectly valid stance. Um, but just in regards to his race wins and and how you deal with those in the context of history, like I, I mean, I was faced with this decision when putting this this book together. And, oh, you've, you know, you've got a book. I've got a book. It's called the Road Book, <laughs> and it's uh, it's it's full of. Um, it's full of results. Uh, you know, it, it's a record of the 2018 season, but it has historical results in it as well. Yeah. And, you know, it, it came to the page where you list the Tour de France winners. And uh, I did. I put in Lance Armstrong and I put an asterisk next to his name rather than the other choice would have been to put in no winner or, you know, vacant or whatever it might be. And so I put I put Armstrong in with an asterisk because that's what happened. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I, I think maybe more and more, and I, and I have seen that more and more. You know, I, I have seen, you know, even the, the, the official Tour de France guides, for a few years they had vacant in them. These are the official ones that I presume get some kind of ASO stamp of approval. and uh, or, or maybe not, I don't know. But it, for a few years they had vacant. And now they've started publishing Lance Armstrong with an asterisk next to them. And uh, I, I kind of think that will happen a, a little bit more and more. But it's, it's really, it's tricky. And... It's um, you know, on the on the one hand, you'd kind of say, why he doped, everybody else did, and uh, you know, Armstrong's opinion is that he's been treated harsher than everybody else, and Bruniel's is as well, and I think there's a certain uh, truth to that that they have been treated harsher than everybody else, but then you know, you start to remember and you remind yourself and you read the aside of these. That's the problem. Oh, it's not the that, problem; it's the reason. 
Yeah, and but you know, there's there's two sides to that as well. I mean, should they be punished more for just being arseholes? Didn't they just break the same rules as everybody else? But then, you know, if you do remind yourself about what it is they actually did, in um, particularly in the testimony in the USADA reason decision, you know, they weren't just taking drugs themselves, or in, in Armstrong's case, just himself. They were they were pushing others to do yeah. it, and they were they were doing more than that. And in Armstrong's case, you know, he was part owner of the team, so he has that. Uh, element to his um, his past as well. It wasn't just you know just doping. It was a little bit more than that in his case. Um, but you know it it's complicated, and I wouldn't really judge anybody too harshly for leaning one way or the other. It, it's um, it, I think it's a completely subjective thing what way you think about this, and it's not straightforward. You know a lot of, and I think that's my point. That would be my yeah, point. Yeah, it's complicated. That, yeah. And People I tell like you what, the, you go back and watch those tours, they're fantastic entertainment. Mm. You know, oh, really I really are. enjoyed that this morning. I'll tell you what else is good, and really don't want to get into this debate, but I just I just noticed it, is that they didn't wear helmets going up Alpe d'Huez. And uh, for a mountain time trial, if they were to do a mountain time trial, I think they should do that, because it really added to it. You know, yeah. you didn't have guys covered in helmets and sunglasses, and, you know, you just had... The, you could see their pain faces and the sweat dripping down their necks and it, it did make a massive difference um, to them not wearing helmets. It made a massive difference in Paris. It made a massive difference everywhere, you know. You know, what, What's a few serious head injuries and deaths compared to proper entertainment? Oh. <laughs> Actually, I've, I've had a lot of discussion on Twitter about the helmet. That, that, by the way, is firmly tongue-in-cheek, people. Yeah. But, you know, I've had a lot of discussion about helmets. Um, I, I don't think we should get into this now. Because, no, no, no. I, I, no. If, if you think you get grief about saying Armstrong might, you know, needs an asterisk, you, you'd see the helmet, you know, the helmet grief you get if you get enter into that argument. Now... We know where people can find you on the internet. It's mail at irishpeloton.com. It's at irishpeloton on Twitter. Um, Twitch notes, presumably, if you, you know, yeah. you, you'll yeah, put the links on hashtag Twitch notes on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, if you want to find out, you know, the videos that Killian's talking about, all that kind of stuff. But a wee birdie whispered to me, there's a new venture. Would you like to pimp that? <laughs> one one more time it's the roadbook.co.uk and and i guess um what we're going for is if anybody's heard of the wisdom which is the cricket almanac it's the wisdom of cycling is, yeah, is i what think they've got a head start job <laughs> wisdom on wheels as somebody put on twitter yeah that's what we were aiming for so yeah check it out we'll be back we'll be back quite soon with another edition of this week in cycling history where i'll, I'll try and keep mentions of the roadbook down to maybe four or five but thank you for listening, and if you enjoy this show, please consider subscribing to our early bird offer. It's at velocast.cc. You get uh, 12 months of content for the price of 10, and that includes Killian and I bumping our gums about history, Killian's uh, book shows, when he manages to catch up with other famous authors in their leather, you know, leather-clad club in you know, some posh street in London where they probably all gather to drink uh, pina coladas of the like, um, and also our daily shows from the Grand Tours and, and the classics, as well as weekly content from the Velocast. So that's velocast.cc for the early bird offer, and thanks for listening.